here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. With me as always, the Super and Terrific and hopefully happy, Stephanie Pompoy. Very happy, very happy to be here with you today. Marvelous. How is the weather in sunny Florida? The weather in sunny Florida is sunny and uh, quite comfortable. How about you? How is uh, the weather up in South Carolina? It is, I doubt, equally sunny, or it won't be equally warm, but it's sunny as well. It's just delightful, absolutely (laughs) delightful. And I I have today been gifted a new granddaughter yes. by my my eldest daughter Molly. So uh, Molly, if you're listening, congratulations on the birth of little Yay. Sienna. Congratulations, Molly. I am a grandfather so twice over. How about that? Grandpa. Oh my Grandpa. lord. <laughs> Who ever thought this day would come, Steph? Grief. Oh, you know you love it. Hang on, let me just so, insert a pause for you to say you don't look old enough. Hold on, pause. Yes. Oh no, you absolutely could not be a grandfather. Oh, well, I, just, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Well, oh. listen, there's um there's a whole bunch of stuff going on that that I thought you and I could noodle about. But the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, and I I do this with some degree of trepidation. Oh boy. Is to talk to you about the fact that you in your wonderful missive this week mentioned the B word. I know, I know. I I couldn't contain myself anymore. I well, so I, I thought what better? <laughs> what better than for two Let's call ourselves bit skeptics to kick around this idea and and to jumpstart it. I, what I'd love to do is talk about the two reasons you put up um, for your healthy skepticism around Bitcoin. One of them I share, and the other one is also something I share thanks to a conversation I had with you about a month ago. But I haven't really heard anybody else talking about it. So uh, perhaps you could kind of sketch that out, and then we can we can kind of get into it over your thoughts. <laughs> well, uh, actually, I really only have questions. I, I obviously don't have any answers, but the question right. that I raised was, why isn't anyone thinking about or um, concerned about where crypto is going to end up being ranked in the capital hierarchy? I'm thinking specifically of um what it does for your credit ratings if you're a Tesla, for example, and you've decided that you're going to allocate some percentage of your cash to crypto. Um, Obviously, right now, we're just talking in the abstract because it's been Tesla and maybe a couple, a handful of other companies that have done that, and the amount that they're apportioning to crypto isn't significant enough that it would necessarily impact their ratings. But uh, time will come when it does. If Bitcoin keeps appreciating as it has, um, it's going to become obviously a larger and larger share of cash for the companies that have taken out those positions. And one presumes that the credit ratings agencies 
um, are starting to puzzle over what they're going to do about this problem. And in fact, um, you know, the contact I have over at S&P, who's on the equity side, but obviously has connections on, on the rating side, said that this is, quote unquote, under review right now. Um, and I'm sure it was put under review with Elon Musk's announcement um, with Tesla putting in that the position, yeah. whatever that was a month ago. So, I mean, I just raise it because it seems like a fairly high certainty that crypto will not be ranked on a level with cash, but somewhere inferior to cash, given, it, if nothing else, it's volatility right now. Um, and for that reason, I would think that it would maybe uh, caution companies against rushing to follow Tesla, um, which is sort of the opposite of the narrative, I think, that took hold right after Elon Musk made that decision, which was, oh my gosh, well, if the anointed one is going to move money into crypto, well, then by golly, every other company is going to run to do the same. So we better position for this torrent of uh, corporate cash that's going to move over. And again, I just raised the question, having no answers, but if this is what the market expects, is that really a reasonable assumption? And I think there, this ratings question um, is a reason to really pause. Well, it's interesting because you're right. When when Musk did that, obviously all the headlines were around, this is just the, the kind of front edge of a tidal wave of people that are going to rush their corporate treasuries into Bitcoin. And obviously the micro strategy um Treasure has been, you know, Michael Saylor right. and his crew have been actually raising debt right. at, at tiny, tiny coupon rates to buy Bitcoin, which in, in one direction makes you look like an absolute genius. Um, but in the other direction, potentially, and, and we don't know, could make you look very foolish, right? I mean, it, it's, and this is something that I raised in a podcast very soon after he started putting all his money into, into Bitcoin and Treasury. And I was asked the same question and I said, oh, I, I think it looks fantastic right now, but if the price starts going down and he ends up underwater in that, what, what happens then? And, th and this ratings question, which I, to be honest, until you and I had that conversation a month ago, I hadn't really thought about it. Um, but it does make sense. And, it, and certainly given the volatility of, of uh, crypto, it, it, you'd be hard pushed to see a world where it would, it would not require a fairly significant haircut, one would imagine, because even though the price has been going up consistently, um, that's not how they think about these things. It's not one of these things, oh, well, because it's going up, it's okay. Right, right, absolutely. Well, I mean, it was during the housing bubble where they assumed that mortgages, well, right? <laughs> but let's hope, knock on wood, that they've learned their lesson from that one. Um, but, you know, it, it is true that uh, leverage makes you look like a genius when it's going in your direction, but in the other way, um, it's eviscerating. So I, again, I just throw this out as a question, and I think that unlike the the other issue which I highlighted, which was the uh, regulation that's going to come down the pipe, uh, this one could be a headline risk any minute now. You know, who knows when these ratings agencies are going to come out of their bunkers and say, "Okay, here's where we're going to put crypto on on the capital hierarchy," but it could be tomorrow. It could be by the time we finish recording this podcast. <laughs> Um, so uh, unlike the regulatory headwinds that's out there where you have clear visibility and, and maybe you have a some sense that, well, it's going to take them a long time to figure out exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to go about it and all come together. And um, this one, 
I think could come any minute and out of left field. And and again, as you mentioned, no one no one really seems to be focused on it. I haven't heard any commentary about no. it. So that could I, be no, I haven't, I, but I'm interested to know what your what your clients think about this because obviously you talk to some very smart people on the institutional side and and i and i'm just i'm generally curious to figure out what their attitude a to bitcoin and b to your attitude about bitcoin is because because you know you like me are, are skeptical i'm not a, i'm not a denier uh i'm just there are questions that i have too like you that i haven't had answered yet um yeah. i'm not saying it's it's go to zero i'm not saying it's a ponzi scheme i'm not saying all those kind of wholly negative things but there are things that just don't make me fully comfortable with it but what 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 have your clients been saying to you about it well the impetus for me finally (laughs) writing about the b word and uh exposing myself to what i thought would be just a a tidal wave of uh, derision uh coming my way was that i had so many clients who very politely this isn't like conversations in the Bitcoin chat rooms, um, you know, who very politely said, look, you know, I'm not 100 percent persuaded that Bitcoin is a thing, but, uh, you know, it's got enough going for it that I don't really want to ignore the possibility that this may be a a major, you know, shift that we're seeing in um, the way payments are processed in the future. And, you know, I get that. Um, but I had enough people, um, including a lot of people who had previously been very dogged gold bulls. I won't say gold bugs, but they were, you know, fully on board with with gold. Um, who have now apportioned some of what they had in gold to Bitcoin, um, if only to hedge the possibility that maybe they're missing the next yeah. big thing and that gold is going to be left on on the sidelines. Um, so that kind of forced me to really write about it just so that everyone understood. It's not that I'm ignoring the existence of Bitcoin. It's just that I can't get my head around those, a lot of issues, but those two, the regulatory and the ratings ones in particular, um, and that those really have me ready to, to stand on the sidelines and, and watch and see what happens. Um, because cynically, it it feels to me like the only thing that's changed in the last month as I watch one gold bull after another abandon gold to go into Bitcoin is that the price of Bitcoin has gone up a lot. Nothing else right. that I can see has really changed. Um, so it just feels so much like that classic bubble psychology where you get to the point where it goes up so much that if you don't own it, you feel like a first class fool and your clients are calling you up every day saying, why don't you own this? So you're kind of pressured to uh, to go for it, even if you're not totally persuaded. And, and that's not a uh, setup that makes me feel uh, particularly comfortable, as you're saying, you know, you're not comfortable with it. I, I don't really love people buying it because they feel like they have to buy it. That's not a compelling rationale in yeah. most cases. So, but amazingly, since I sent that piece out, I haven't heard a peep. You know, I invited, oh, really? yeah, I invited, yes, as you, you know, people to explain to me what I'm missing. Because sincerely, I, you know, I have people forward me articles on Bitcoin and videos and watch this and read this and, you know, don't you get it? And I'll respond with all the same questions that don't seem answered by the articles and the videos and all of this. 
Um, and that's why I wrote the piece. I'm like, please, I'm begging you, somebody right. tell me why what I'm saying is wrong. Um, and so far, I haven't heard much, but you know, it's only been whatever, 48 hours. So (laughs) (laughs) maybe they're going to be banging their keyboards over the weekend and I'll have that delight to look forward to. I mean, what do you hear when, when you talk about this and you have a lot about Bitcoin and you've talked with people who are real authorities on the subject? I mean, have you found yourself persuaded I guess not, since you said you still don't feel comfortable. No, well, no, no. I, I haven't found myself persuaded to want to buy it at fifty-eight thousand dollars. Right. right? The, the, this narrative that it's going to a million is fine, but I, I just don't think that buying it for, for what what you said that, that that jumping in because everyone else is buying it that feels right now to be the pervading narrative to me. That's why so many people are jumping on mm-hmm. the train right now. And and like you, I, I just look at that and think, well. Listen, if it's a good idea, who's to say that 30000 isn't fair value for it? And I know, I know, I know there are people that have done all these things and they'll tell you why fair value is multiple side of that. And that may turn out to be the truth. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean it has to go there right now and it doesn't mean it has to go there this fast and it doesn't mean it can't correct. As you know, as we saw a fairly significant drawdown a couple of weeks ago and it's, you know, it's bounced back subsequently, but that I would suggest is perhaps down to outside factors that, that kind of again hint at a return of inflation and, and, and a return to you know open-ended stimulus checks and all these other things mm-hmm. that, that 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 do provide a solid reason to potentially own bitcoin but we'll come on to that in a minute because i want to i want to go back to the gold component of this because you know you you and i would both i think purport to understand gold at the very least and yet as always with that little darling asset <laughs> There are, there are times when it seems to act counterintuitive. Now, now um, there, you know, there are people jumping up and down saying, oh, this is the first stop on the road to $800 again and all, all this kind of stuff that you get. The emotions in both directions are kind of funny to me. But at least with gold, you can look at it and say, well, based on what real rates have been doing, it makes sense in some ways for gold to be to be declining, right? As rates have backed up, you, right. you can kind of understand that. Um, so I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on gold here and and perhaps we can tie that into this backup in rates because i know you remain firmly in the deflation camp and whether i'm, I'm curious to get an update whether that is a a now and short to medium term view or you think we're just in for one last kind of gut punch from deflation or whether you think this whole inflation thing uh is a head fake as rosie said when we spoke to him yeah, well, I mean, I guess in the short term, I do think mathematically we're going to get a really nasty inflation scare just because uh, the math is such that we could get to 3% on the CPI in just a couple of months. So that it will unnerve all the inflationistas out there who are already kind of gripping for a return of the 1970s. And, I, you know, honestly, I can see the setup for inflation and there's it's very compelling given this monetary and fiscal stimulus. And as you said, it looks like the fiscal stimulus we're seeing now is, you know, going to continue. And that's got, um, you know, real rates starting to move and inflation expectations go up. Um, but the thing that strikes me is that the, the two, the key differences between now and the 1970s are debt and demographics. Hmm. And it, it would be hard to find two more powerful forces for deflation 
than debt and demographics. And, uh, you know, in the 70s, the U.S. economy was basically unencumbered by debt. It was before this whole borrowing finance started, and our demographics were far superior than they are today. And obviously, they were debt and demographics were bad going into the pandemic. Now they're even worse, thanks to, um, you know, the incredible borrowing and also the further decline in um, birth rates. So anyway, I just, uh, that sort of holds me back from getting all hyped up about the the outlook for inflation long term. And also, I, I just look at what happened over the last decade with the Fed doing all this QE and inflation decline because what they were doing was supporting all these uh, margin killing zombies in the corporate sector. And on the consumer side, again, you're you're punishing an older population by giving them zero return on their savings. So they have to save even harder, which means they have to forego spending. So perversely, your efforts to juice the economy actually force people to slow spending, not increase spending and increase their savings instead. So um, I don't know why doing more of the same on the part of the Fed will be get a different result. I, I would expect it will get the same result. The question is, does the added layer of fiscal change that? And if you look at what happened with CARES round two, it's hard to argue it would. You know, I was just looking at these numbers the other day. Personal income is $2.3 trillion higher than it was before yeah. the pandemic. That's just 13 months ago. $2.3 trillion higher. Consumer spending is $80 billion lower. So, I mean, it's mind-boggling that despite being having this $2 trillion shoveled at them, consumers essentially said, you know what, I'd rather put it in the stock market through my Robinhood account or whatever, but yeah. I'm not going to go out and, and spend it. And people will argue, well, that's because they couldn't spend it because they were in lockdown. But, you know, $80 billion decrease in consumer spending, I think it's a stretch to argue that they couldn't come together with some way to spend at least a portion of the $2 trillion. Right. <laughs> I mean, I know I found ways to spend money during the pandemic. Oh, man. Yeah, but you're a pro. You're an absolute I... pro at that. So. Oh, we should all be as talented as you at that. Right, exactly. But, but you know, it, it, it's interesting because this, this recovery narrative, you know, I saw that Carnival Cruises had their biggest booking day of I don't know whether it was the last year or ever the other day. Uh -huh. And, and you know, anecdotally, um, I'm hearing stories that airports, certain airport hubs are, are getting really busy again. And so there does seem to be this, this narrative around that the, you know, the post lockdown recovery is happening. The, the, you know, the, the vaccine led return to craziness and, and the desire to kind of shake off the shackles of, lockdown and 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 go mad that narrative is alive and well and as we've often discussed you kind of only need the narrative to be alive and well yes. to fuel stock market animal spirits and that seems to me to be what's happening though yeah absolutely so i guess it puts us back in that situation where we're going to have to prove it prove it prove it prove, you know we're going to have to get disappointing earnings not just for one quarter but for two three you know it's going to be another slog to try to win hearts and minds to the idea that really uh, maybe this V-shaped rebound isn't going to be quite as V-shaped. Uh, I was struck, the Wall Street Journal, uh, day before yesterday, I think, had a, an article about companies struggling with higher input costs. And they quoted the CEO of the container store 
who had just reported a 20% increase in sales in the third quarter. And they asked him, what are you going to do? Because all these uh, plastic input costs are going up plastic and they a lot of plastic and everything they sell. And he said, well, we're contemplating raising prices. I'm thinking you're contemplating raising prices. You just had 20% increase in sales. Uh, the household, you know, home improvement sector is booming and you're not immediately raising prices. I mean, that strikes me as a sign of some hesitation about whether they're actually going to be able to get that pricing power. And that's probably one of the most, uh, you know, price friendly markets out there. So I, I just find anecdotes like that really interesting. But also, you know, I'm not going to deny that there will be inflation in certain segments of uh, the economy. I just don't think that you'll see a generalized increase in inflation because I think people will pick and choose and they'll say, yeah, okay, I'm willing to pay a little more for that, but I'm not going to lift my entire nominal spending. I'm not going to increase my total budget uh, to accommodate higher prices in everything. I'm going to pick and choose. I might pay more for this, but I'm going to cut back on that. And that's been the behavior. So I'm not yeah. forecasting a change. That's the thing is the market is sort of penalizing me for expecting the same uh, while they you know, discount some kind of total new consumer behavior that we haven't seen since before the housing bubble bust. That's how old the behavior they're discounting is, in my view. But but, but you know, I, I think about this often and it seems as though there are plenty of reasons that one can point to for caution, right? And you and I mm -hmm. like to do that. We, we're, let's call ourselves pragmatists. <laughs> we're, we're, let's call ourselves we're, we're grumpy old people. That's <laughs> grumpy old people, yeah, right. Um, but uh, there's always some kind of future narrative that it seems people are so happy to glom onto, like, you know, whatever it may be, like this time it's post lockdown and things, don't worry, the market's going to look through. We know that, uh, as Rosie said, that Q3 earnings are going to be horrible, but the market's going to look through that to the sunlit uplands beyond. And more and more in the last couple of years, that, that looking through has become both necessary because of all the stuff that's right in front of you. And you've kind of got to have even more faith in that narrative. And yet the market has really, except for this time last year, the market's managed to do that and shrugged everything off mm -hmm. and looked through everything with just consumer ease. It almost feels as though we've reached the point where everybody is invested in the things going up. And as long as it does go up, they're happy to play. Mm -hmm. And just keep throwing fuel on the fire. It, it, it seems like a self-reinforcing loop at this point in time. Well, especially since the people who are, you know, inclined to keep it going include all of the policymakers. It's not right. just, you know, retail investors or institutional investors. It's the people pulling the, the policy levels, levers. Um, and I think that, you know, that gets into that rhetorical question of, can they just print money and keep this thing going forever? And why do we care about the fundamentals? Why do people like you and I actually sit here and, and really try to figure out what's going on in the numbers and on the ground when that's all irrelevant as long as they're going to keep printing money? Um, and, and that's sort of why I keep coming back to this near-term inflation scare, because as you saw, 
what did we take one, not even one six on the 10 year and the stock market really started to feel uneasy. So if we do get numbers north of 3% on the CPI, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that the stock market would just take that in stride and say, okay, well, it's okay. We'll look through that to, you know, the the more uh, Goldilocks situation on the other side. I don't, that's what has me concerned. Do you see any, I mean, when you look at it, what's your answer to that rhetorical question of what stops this train from going with no sign that policymakers are going to stop it? Well, I I think we got a clue as to that, as you say, when, when we had this back up in rates recently, because you could see just how shaken everybody got and how quickly it happened, you know. And I don't think it was any secret that the market and the government and the Fed can't tolerate higher rates, meaningfully higher rates. I mean, 1.6 is, you know, is if 1.6 is starting right. to get people you know, animated, then we've potentially got some real problems ahead. And that, and that kind of brings us on to this idea of yield curve control, right? Because it's been something that wasn't discussed for the longest time. I think there were a couple of questions floated about it and it was just kind of knocked back. But there's been a couple, I think Bullard made a comment about yield curve control. And again, it was kind of a two-handed comment, one saying, we haven't discussed it, and two saying, I would discuss it. You know, so you don't really know, but you know that it's clearly a, a topic of conversation. And so I, you know, I just wonder if this idea of yield curve control, and if you look at the, the Fed's purchases of treasuries over the last month, you could argue that maybe it's already started mm-hmm. without the same thing. They, they, they've, they've been buying way ahead of their run rate for the last, uh, I think, six weeks or so, give or take. So, so I, I'm curious as this idea of yield control, because to me, if they implement that overtly, it's fine to do it covertly and kind of hope nobody notices, mm-hmm. as I say, which may be what's going on. But if you input that overtly, uh, surely you cause yourself a problem in that we've seen how many foreigners have been looking to exit their treasury positions. And the only thing that has been thrown back as a reason why the likes of China couldn't step up their sales, they've, they've obviously been selling, but the reason they couldn't sell faster is that they destroy their own market. But if you very kindly step in with an unlimited bid as the US right. Treasury, yeah. you know, one has to think that there will be countries that will take advantage of that, given the path the US is, the fiscal path the US is on, the promises that they're making left and right, the size of the deficits, you know, all those things that we know. Mm-hmm. You know I keep trying to figure out how that matters because it has to matter at some point. And I keep coming back to this idea that if yield curve control is explicitly stated, that's the point where people say, right, well, if we do want off this bus, this is our stop. Yeah. No, it's such an important point because uh, you know, facetiously, I was going to say that they'll implement yield curve control after it's already inflicted all the damage, which it's probably still true. But um, w- what we do know is that the Fed has a choice. It can control interest rates or it can control the dollar, but it can't control both. And the outlet, if it's going to do yield curve control, is exactly what you're saying. It's going to be the dollar. And whether we want to debate whether it's Bitcoin that benefits from that or gold, clearly you need to find a hedge for that scenario because whether the Fed does it uh, overtly, covertly, in anticipation or in reaction, that's coming, um, I think, unquestionably, don't you think? Yeah, it feels like, as I say, we saw last week that 
if the market wants to go that way, then somebody has to step in and stop the market going that way. And the only way you can really do that is through something like yield curve control. Now, the Japanese have obviously done it, and, and it's it's worked for them. They haven't really had to put their hands in their pockets, don't forget. But right. their their sovereign bond market is, is owned mostly domestically, Domestic. so they're not really having the same. So every time people use this comparison with Japan, I, yeah. I think it's a spurious one. Absolutely. I mean, they don't have any foreigners to answer to at all. So, the, and we are exactly the opposite scenario. No, I agree with you 100%. I think that's going to be a huge issue. And I think that is intellectually the rationale that both camps, the gold bulls and the Bitcoin bulls, ascribe to, other than the just momentum chasers. But the, the real thinkers who are involved in those two markets, I think, are 100% anticipating that. Um, but And you're seeing China already, you know, they've been fairly aggressive in terms of their, I mean, I don't know if you can be aggressive in your non-purchases. Right. <laughs> I'm going to aggressively step aside. I'm going to yeah. be aggressively passive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Belligerently passive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's already, already happening. Um, and as you say, I guess you're seeing it in terms of what the Fed is going to ha- is been having to pick up in terms of slack there. Um, and that seven-year auction was another shot across the bow a couple of weeks ago. So, I, well, we've, we've had we've, we've had we've had these shots across the bow before, and they've they've kind of mattered to the wonks who look at these things, and and they haven't really mattered in the broader scheme of things. That that's happened many a time. Yeah, you know, what we have seen recently with in kind of conjunction with the yields backing up was this sudden rotation out of growth and into value, which is arguably long overdue. We saw, you know, a pretty serious decline in a lot of these momentum growth stocks. And we saw some pretty decent inflows into into small cap value and, and other value stocks. Is that, do you think, another way of representing this, I need to have something tangible needs to have something that's going to protect me or is it just we're seeing the markets rotate and people need to get into the most unloved things which is always value seems these days yeah no i mean i guess i'm puzzled i'd love to imagine that it's a a desire to actually identify value um but i wonder if it's also this narrative that as the economy opens the tech sectors that benefited from the lockdown aren't as appealing and therefore people are just dumping everything that enjoyed the ride alongside that and they're going the other direction. Um, I don't know, I, I, I'm i still not persuaded as to that there is a market narrative right now. <laughs> what about you? I mean, you look at this. Well, I did, I, 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 I did, is it possible to identify as a value investor? Can you, can you do that? I think I should, I think I should, I should probably kind of do that. I, I, you know, I've, I've, it's been interesting to watch in the last couple of weeks and see, you know, some some pretty meaningful corrections in some of these momentum stocks. You know, to see Apple down, you know, four and a half five percent on a on a day when you know the Dow's largely unchanged, but the Nasdaq's getting shellacked, and to see you know Tesla fall by a third, mm-hmm. you know, still to crazy overvalued levels, but but still to see it do that. Even though it's rebounded subsequently, obviously it rallied twenty percent um, 
on a day when they admitted that full self-driving doesn't exist, which was, again, another interesting <laughs> Tesla dichotomy, but there's been too many of those to follow. But it, right. but it has been interesting watching the, the kind of air selectively come out of these, I don't want to even use the term bubbles, but these high-flying high stocks flying. that everybody's been chasing. Because it, it felt for the longest time that you couldn't get a 30% drawdown in Tesla because there'd be people that were climbing. You couldn't see Apple kind of fall that kind of distance because it was one of the only stocks worth owning. And so I, so I don't know if anything's changed, but it's it certainly this last couple of weeks, you kind of felt that change in the air, felt mm-hmm. like the change in the seasons. You know, we, we, we saw rates do what they did. We saw risk assets do what they did. We saw flows do what they did. We saw, uh, you know, the dollar do what it's doing. You know, everything kind of changed almost like the seasons. Mm-hmm. It just felt to me as though with all that happening together, it likely did signify that that there, there potentially was change in the air, which, you know, feels overdue to me. Uh, you know, the only constant, obviously, is the Bitcoin price going up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, um, the one thing I would note is that on the corporate credit side, you have seen a real increase, a backup in junk yields, um, which is interesting because it, when you've seen treasury yields back up in the past, admittedly not to that one six number, but when we've had these sort of little inflation bouts of scare before, uh, spreads actually compressed in that risk assets became even more dear. Uh, and that's not the case this time. I think junk yields are up 60 basis points yeah. from their lows just three weeks ago. I mean, that's a fairly massive move. Admittedly, we're coming from ridiculously low levels. But the one thing that hasn't changed during this whole uh, uh, stimulus frenzy is the underlying credit quality of these companies, which is incredible. I mean, I track the corporate credit downgrades on a daily basis, and we're running ahead of where we were year to date last year, which is amazing because we're at March 11th. The pandemic was two weeks old at this point last year. So we have basically no credit delinquents. You know, we're we're really, um, we're still going higher and higher and higher, even with the stimulus. Um, so we've we've fixed nothing. We've basically just put a Band-Aid over all these problems. And maybe the ultimate number to come back to is that there's still 10 million jobs out there that have been lost from where we were before yeah. the pandemic. So how does that not have a significant uh, role to play in the trajectory of growth going forward, spending corporate profits and, by extension, corporate credit quality? Um, that's just sort of, to me, maybe the one number that you really want to focus on in this Well, whole. and of course, we, we have all the kind of the rent forbearance is, is mm-hmm. going to start to fall away fairly soon. And, you know, we had Rosie on talking about you know, rent and shelter. Now, the forbearance, the people not having to pay their rent, it turns out is actually a negative in that calculation. So it's actually brought the biggest component of the CPI down yeah. significantly just by people not having to pay their rent. It's not gone away. You know, it's not been forgiven. It's been right. deferred. Well, if you look at that shelter component too, it's like fallen off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. And, and still we've managed to get hot CPI ratings, uh, readings, sorry, without that there. 
you know so so again you know that that point about the unemployment is is a significant one and it, and it it's amazing i think how easily people have looked through that number mm-hmm. you know the charts at this time last year or certainly over the next quarter last year when these readings started coming in and we were looking at those charts of jobless claims that you had to redo the scale because we'd never seen anything like yeah. it before and and they were almost too fantastical for people to take seriously you know it's just like well this has to be just a crazy aberration. It was almost like looking at the chart of the VIX going back in 2008, right? It just uh-huh. screamed up and then just or, dropped or straight Bitcoin off. Or Bitcoin today. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but, but to your point, here we are. We're, we're here a year later and there are 10 million fewer taxpayers out there. Well, and the interesting thing is that people, for example, this morning, look at that unemployment claim, the weekly unemployment claim number, and say, wow, look how low it is. Like, we're really making incredible progress. Well, that's just the number of people who are new to the unemployment lines that week. Forget about the 10 million who are still out there, um, you know, who never found a job. So I think that uh, that could be a major issue. And and getting onto the the rent moratorium uh, ending at some point, um, you also have foreclosures, home foreclosures yeah. are picking up. I just got uh, the latest uh, for February, uh, foreclosures were up 16% from January. So that's already starting to reverse course. Um, and we'll see what happens. I, you know, it's interesting that you have this sort of dichotomy. You have foreclosure rates going up. Um, and yet you have people paying down their credit card debt in unprecedented fashion. So it really is the tale of the two consumers. You've got the people who have the ability to to save and pay down debt are doing that. And then you've got the people who just are really, really struggling. Um, and they just aren't they aren't being able to make ends meet, even with all these stimulus programs, which, you know, suggests to me, we're just going to keep seeing more and more of this fiscal stimulus. I mean, 1.9 trillion is just a drop in the bucket. The most laughable thing is all the hysteria being made about the 86 billion that was meant to uh, go to pensions. I'm yeah. thinking 86 billion. The total unfunded deficit is six trillion. Yeah. 85 billion isn't going to do anything. And if you think that's going to be the next thing, buckle up because there's going to be a lot of stimulus to come on that score. Anyway, well, I it's think, interesting I because, no, because that, <laughs> that, that pension thing, that pension thing is interesting. It's another subject that you and I am going to, under advisement, use the word harping on about because you have been <laughs> harping on about it for for a long time. No, but it, but it, but it's such a it's such a big deal. And again, it's it's like um, I, I keep coming back to this. And, and the only comparison I have is that when I went to Japan in 1989, I remember when I got there trying to learn more about the country and the culture and all this kind of stuff. And I remember reading some scientific study that has said that in, you know, in 2015, this is in 1989, in 2015, the population of Japan would be declining. You know, it would actually be getting smaller every day as of 2015. And I kind of looked at it, I thought, well, that's just weird. Right? How, can you, how can you plan forward for an economy where the population is going to be declining? It seems like a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And whatever, 20, however many years later, there it was. On the on the dot, the uh-huh. population started declining, and then there was a huge scare about this thing, and it st- suddenly started to matter to people. 
And I keep coming back to that with this pension thing because it's it's a similar intractable problem. <laughs> it's it's a huge problem that that has incredible ramifications, and yet it's so big to your point. Six trillion dollars of underfunding when we're arguing over one point nine trillion in the house to just get this bill through. It almost feels like well, I'm I'm not going to worry about that because. Why would I? It's it's going to be a huge problem for somebody, and maybe it's me, right. but maybe it isn't me. And if it isn't me, why the hell would I be spending my time worrying about this when I could get out there and, and lace a barrel full of more pork for this, this stimulus bill? <laughs> but at some point, this stuff has to matter, particularly with that the, the biggest beneficiaries of that pension, the boomer generation now, you know, I think it's 20,000 a day, start withdrawing from those pensions now. So yeah. surely that, that the time when that matters has to speed up now, no? Uh, one would think so. Absolutely. I mean, this is why I keep harping on the subject and the fact that... Oh, you're harping. You've been harping. Yeah, you're calling me a harpy, aren't you? Oh, you've been harping. <laughs> um, but the fact that we have this aging population, I think, is it, it is amazing. Here you're talking about how Japan really should have had 20 years of runway to work on this problem. Um, and likewise, we've known, you know, demographics are fairly inexorable you can you yeah. can see it um and uh the fed despite knowing that we had this aging population decided that you know the really smart way to get the economy going is to push interest rates to zero on people who are trying to save for their retirement and it backfired imagine that <laughs> so i don't know it's it's a puzzlement to me as to why policymakers behave the way they do. Are they really that stupid or are they just self-interested or I, I'm puzzled, but um, and it's definitely going to be a problem. And right now it's a problem and the markets are hitting record highs. You know, we've seen an incredible increase in financial asset inflation when that reverses or if it reverses, that problem becomes a reality very quickly. And I don't know how we deal with that um, other than well, to print just, more money. So there you well, go. Exactly <laughs> right. Another another can to be kicked down the road. Yeah. So I think I think, you know, what we've what we've discovered over this last forty five minutes is that we should all buy Bitcoin. Clearly. That, that, right, that exactly. Feels like, <laughs> it feels like the, the natural outcome. You know, it's it's funny when you piece all this stuff together, um, yeah, it's it's really hard to make an argument for the status quo continuing. Whichever way you come at it, you know, whichever way you look at it, whether you want to look at the bond market, you want to look at equities, you want to look at house prices, you want to look at crypto, you want to look at gold, just take a snapshot of any of those where they are right now. And it's really tough to come up with a cohesive narrative that says, stay invested in those assets the way you are because things aren't going to change. Yeah, like okay. I said, I, I just keep coming to that that conclusion that change of some sort is in the air. I, I can't tell what it is yet, but if we've genuinely reached an inflection point where there is a need to perhaps be worried, even in the short term, about an inflationary spike, which I think is a reasonable fear at this point in time with, with what's in the system and, and the comps that we're going to come up to, mm -hmm. then I, I just keep keen off the fact that if we have an inflationary environment, even if it's only for let's say six months, let's say you get it under control in a matter of six months, then you're going to have six months of pain for just about every single portfolio everywhere in the world because they've all been constructed for deflationary times. And that, that their success has reinforced that belief. And so they've become 
more deflationary in their construction. And I, and I just wonder if that's right, what the pain looks like as people scramble to try and, even if it's not adapt their portfolios for a long-term inflationary bias, just to try and limit the damage done right. in the short term to, to the change in expectations. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying that, I'm picturing in my mind the chart of the S&P versus the CRB. And, right. you know, we're, we're at or very close to all-time record extremes in terms of the primacy of paper over rock, to put it, uh, you know, in those terms. And, and it just seems like we can't, like you're saying, you can't continue to push this indefinitely uh, and this money printing as a way to keep support this untenable growth model that we've created for ourselves, um, you know, is just not going to be able to continue, maybe because our foreign creditors say, no, we're not yeah. going to play this game anymore. And you're on your own financing your lavish lifestyles, in which case it's it's lights out. But it's going to be very interesting to see how it all unfolds for sure. I mean, we've all puzzled over how how the dominoes are going to get knocked over, but it seems pretty clear that something big is coming. And uh, I don't know. I, I look forward to talking about it a lot more with you. Hopefully, while making some money in gold, we'll see. It, it, it's a frustrating ride for sure, but... Well, listen, you, you just, all you have to do is just promise me and the listeners that uh, the day you do jump on the Bitcoin train, you tell us. Because, <laughs> no, because half of us uh, will absolutely fade that decision and the other half will jump on the train with you. But it's going to be a signal for so many people, I think, that if oh you finally God. bite the bullet. Yeah, well, I will definitely let you know, I promise. And if I were on that choice, I would be fading my decision. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh my God. It, it almost tempts me to do it just for that reason. Just to see. Just to see. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Oh, God. Oh dear. Well, Steph, another super and terrific time. And I shall leave this call happier than when I joined it, which is impressive oh. on your part, seeing as, as I've, as I've as just well. become a grandfather. I know. I'm so, so happy for you. Congratulations. Thank you Yay. very much. Uh, I'd like to claim responsibility, but my. My input into the whole exercise was kind of done about 30 years ago. So, so, that's, so I, I can't really claim any, any, any props for that. But um, listen, we, we, shall, uh, we shall convene again and try and figure out what the hell is going on in the world. Uh, I don't know when, but soon, hopefully. I hope so. It's been super and terrific as always. <laughs> well, thank you, Steph. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you're out there still, please do follow us on Twitter. You'll find me at TTMYGH. And I'm at S. Palmboy. Still there. Still, Still there. S. Palmboy. Look at that. <laughs> You've really nailed this now. <laughs> Steph, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Cheerio. Pip, pip. Cheerio. <laughs> Nothing we discussed during the super terrific happy hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.